Well, uh, we come to the end of uh, James chapter 1 this morning. And then we're going to take a break until the fall or the last Sunday of August when we'll pick the series back up and go through the rest of James in the fall at a much faster pace, I might say, than we've done James 1. It just lends itself to that. Uh, This is not like one of those signs where you, you know, you say uh, welcome and you write W-E-L-C and then you have O-M-E stuck on the little end because you ran out of space. This is the way that uh, James lays itself out. So, okay, Uh, we're we're at the last two verses of James chapter 1. And so let me read that, those two verses, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, there's a number of things that are being said to us here. First of all, we can see in this passage that there are many who think they are religious, but their religion is both self-deceptive and worthless or useless. And therefore, I, it's important for Christians to realize that being religious is not our goal. As Christians, we are not pro-religion. Religion can be, and usually is, more prob- problematic than unreligion. There is also, though, religion which is pure and undefiled before God. But it's important that we distinguish between true religion and false. Just because there is true religion doesn't mean all religion is true or all religion is good or helpful. People who think they are religious, but their religion is worthless, they are fooling themselves. They're not only fooling others, but they're fooling themselves. When it says religion that is pure and undefiled before God, it implies that there is religion that is impure and defiled. And even in terms of the Christian religion, there is a Christianity which is impure and defiled. Polluted by superstition, by human tradition, by other religions, by worldly mindedness, by human philosophies, by fleshly indulgence, by love of money and power, by insincerity and hypocrisy. There's a form of Christianity which is all about me all about my prosperity, all about my success and happiness, 
all about having God help me find the things that I need to be happy. There's always been many whose faith is impure and defiled. And there always will be until the Lord comes back. It's sad, but the scriptures are clear that this is just the way it's always going to be. The Bible tells us about this false Christianity over and over again. This impure and defiled Christianity is what brings much criticism of Christianity. People point to a hypocrite and say, see, that's what Christianity is. Well, it may be what that hypocrite is like, but that's not what Christianity is. There is, of course, also legitimate criticism, which is a result of real sin and real believers. And then there's criticism which comes because of Christ, as Jesus refers to in the Beatitudes, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Christ's account, on my account, he says. So, the first thing is that there are many who think they're religious, but their religion is self-deceptive and worthless. The second thing, God has given us litmus tests by which we can make sure we are true believers. Because some claim to have faith and don't, because some think they have faith and don't, it's important that all are involved in the process of evaluating their own hearts and lives. Am I truly a believer in Christ? And this means using certain litmus tests that Christ has given us in his word for this purpose. And this passage is one of those passages which clearly sets out the characteristics of a true believer in Christ. If anyone thinks he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here in this passage, it gives us three litmus tests. A bridled tongue, care for widows and orphans, and keeping oneself unstained by the world. Now, this, these three, the first one, the bridled tongue, he's already talked about in 19 to 21, and he will talk about again a lot in the beginning of chapter 3. So we're not going to spend too much time on that this morning. The third one, keeping oneself unstained by the world, he talks about a lot in the beginning of chapter 4 in James. So we're not going to talk about that one a lot. But the middle one, the care for widows and orphans, is one that he doesn't talk about a lot the rest of of his epistle. And so we're going to give our primary focus to that one today, this morning. God, 
Then that brings us to our third point. God is deeply concerned about orphans and widows. You know, it's hard to grow up, just in general. Even if you have parents who love you and are trying to raise you in a good way, it's hard to grow up. However, without parents, it's so much harder. When you're young, your parents are your main support. And when those, that support is suddenly removed from you, you're not really equipped to handle it. Your whole world crumbles. This word orphan only occurs in one other place in the New Testament, in John chapter 14, verse 18, where Jesus says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here are grown men that he's been with for three years, and he's about to be crucified and leave them in one sense. But he's assuring them that the Holy Spirit is going to be given to them. And he assures them by saying, I will not leave you as orphans. So you can see the the plight in this, the plight of an orphan being left, abandoned, without support, without anyone there to help you. We're told here that uh, true religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Here's a person who's maybe perfectly healthy, may, you know, be, have a good personality, maybe good looking, but they are, as James calls them, afflicted. Why? Because their parents are gone. And, you know, when you have children, I, I know for me, when I started having children, it completely changed the way I think about doing things. I, I, I had wanted nothing to do with dangerous activities because the thought of leaving my wife and my children without me was unthinkable. I loved them too much. I wasn't going to do some crazy thing that might get me killed. It is such a sad place for many, many children because they have no parents. There's a quarter of a billion parentless children in the world today. And many, many children, you know, uh, we've had a wave of uh, orphans as a result of the war in Ukraine and a result of the uh, the war in Ethiopia and the, and a result of the uh, um, I mean I I mean Yemen isn't that where it is I'm sorry and then as a result of COVID too but God cares for orphans He upholds the fatherless. He tells us that he wants us to care as well. And, you know, he's not asking us to do everything for them. He's just asking us to visit them, to remember them, to, do, to not forget about them, not ignore them. Do what you can for them. Keep an eye on them. Don't let them off your radar. And then, widows. God also has a 
special place in his heart for widows, as we can see in the scriptures. Psalm 68.5, which I just referred to. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. So think about a widow's life. First of all, she has the grief of having lost a loved one. Hopefully, a loved one. But then she's also in charge of encouraging and comforting her children who've also lost their father. And then, in most cases, her source of income has disappeared as well. Plus, there's a vulnerability. You know, God says he's the defender of widows in Psalm 68. And that's because widows are vulnerable. I remember uh, hearing an international justice mission um, spokesman talking about a story where a, uh, a woman's husband died and, uh, and they had, in, in Africa and they had a little plot of land that they, that's how they fed, that's how they fed their family was growing things on this little plot of land. And when he died, even though his wish was that his wife would have that land and be able to feed the children, his family said, no, 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 this land belongs to us because this is our brother. And they came in and, you know, who was she to fight against this whole family of men and they were trying to push her out. And IJM you know, intervened and, and protected her. But this is the way it is in the world. In many places, widows are vulnerable. And then there's the loneliness. I mean, just the personal, relational, emotional, spiritual loneliness. No one is there to care about the details of your life. No one's there to encourage you when you're discouraged or challenge you when you're undisciplined. And then there's the aloneness. It's a little different than loneliness. You know, um, life is a two-man job. You know, you don't... And the fact is, for instance, there are places I can't touch on my back. If, If my wife can't scratch me I have no one to scratch my back if and you know there's I feel a weird bump on the my head if I don't have someone else there to look at it and tell me oh it's green or whatever then you know I have no life is designed to be lived in two at least and so a widow has lost her partner and just functionally and how hard it is to parent alone and when you're sick who takes care of you and when you need to go to the hospital who takes you there it's a very difficult life to live and then of course we have to remember that first century widows were much worse off than widows are today in many ways Um, there's a lot of overlap but there's certainly ways that first century widows were worse off 
Because in that society, uh, there was an issue of social standing. In our society, if, if a father, if a husband dies, the wife isn't, doesn't lose her social status necessarily. But in that society, she did. It was the breaking down of her identity. It was losing favor in the eyes of others. It was being seen as a nobody, and even worse, being seen as cursed by God. Let me read you a little sentence out of the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible on widows. It says, Legally, the widow was ignored for purposes of inheritance. So she didn't get the inheritance from her husband who died. And if her husband died prematurely, that is before it was, you know, he was at full life age, this was considered a judgment for the life he had led. And she became an object of reproach for her, partly for her ability to prevent his untimely death. And we see this in Isaiah 54.4, which refers to the reproach of your widowhood. It meant you were shamed for being a widow. I think it's pretty clear that orphans and widows are not the definition of who God cares for, but description of the kind of people that God cares for. In other words, this is a sampling, not a complete list of the kind of people that God's calling us to have a heart for. We know this because of other similar places in the scriptures, like the the passage that I, I read about widows and orphans. It also mentions sojourners. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. So, you know, it's the people without a home, the strangers, the person, the refugee, the person who who is just wandering around, rootless, that person also God has a heart for. And then there are other places where the same exact kind of point is made, that this is what a true follower of Christ is, but instead of using widows and orphans, they use other kinds of people. For instance, in Luke 14, 12-14, instead of using orphan and widow, Jesus uses the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And in Matthew 25, in that uh, parable, you know, where the, where, the, where the sheep and the goat, or, or the, uh, the ones where he says, you did it to the least of these, my brethren, he uses the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the unclothed, the sick, the prisoner. And in that passage, Jesus sums up the kind of people he wants us to go out of our way to care for as the least of these my brethren. Or the least of these brothers of mine, which of course includes sisters as well. And that leads us to our next point. That there are parts of the body of Christ which needs special care and God calls us to give special care to certain parts of his body this whole chapter James 1 has been about trials but the fact is there are some people whose whole life is trial like orphans and widows 
And we ought to care for one another in times of trial, but we ought to have a special care for those whose lives are constant trial. And the Bible tells us not only to care for them, but to realize that they're an important part of us. God made it so that we need the needy. Why? Well, this this doesn't really make sense in worldly thinking, like business strategy. You know, but God's ways are not like our ways. It's not just that we're supposed to be filled with love, but we're supposed to have the eyes of Christ to see that these people are treasures, valuable to us and to Christ. You know, I've been reading for the first time, I'm embarrassed to say, the book Johnny. I'm reading it to my grandchildren. And therefore, uh, I'm going through it. I've, read, I've seen the movie, but uh, never read the book. And uh, as John, you know, Johnny Erickson, she, uh, she broke her neck when she was just at the end of high, like graduating from high school. And, um, um, you know, so she's been a quadriplegic for, you know, she's a few years older than me. So, you know, over 50 years. She's been a quadriplegic. And, and if you know, you know, if, you're, if you don't know about Johnny, you need to know about Johnny Erickson and all the, her books and all the amazing ways that she's helped people and changed the world. And, uh, and so here she is. She's, she's not a very mature Christian. And I can say that, I mean, I know people that know, knew her and, you know, they say they can confirm that. But she was a Christian. She was in Young Life. And, uh, and after this accident happened, you know, all her friends wanted to come and, and comfort her and everything. But as time wore on, as that became more and more obvious that, she, that this was permanent, that she was a quadriplegic for the rest of her life, you know, friends stopped visiting. And one friend kept coming, a girl named Jackie. And... and um, and, but, you know, there was so much pressure on that girl. Uh, Johnny's parents even didn't come that much because it was so painful for them to see her and to think of her whole future as a quadriplegic, you know, completely helpless, that it was hard for them to even come themselves. But this one friend, Jackie, came. But... You know, no one else. And therefore, it was very hard on Jackie because she didn't feel like she could stop coming. And it just became overwhelming. And eventually, she started to, to uh, taper off in her visits. And, for, and she's talking about how another friend, a friend named Diana, um, she began to visit. But I thought of this. I thought of this girl, Jackie. And, you know, she did better than her friends. And she was a hero in some ways. But she had no idea that this girl she was visiting wasn't just someone who's going to be completely irrelevant and, and you know, just like a charity case. But this woman was going to change the world. This is going to be someone you'd be famous just for knowing her. And just for... 
ministering to her. And that's the way it is, you know. We don't, it's so easy for us to see someone who's hurting, see someone who's needy, see someone who's, you know, for one reason or another is, is uh, neglected by everyone else. And think, oh, you know, give, throw a few minutes of care here and there, but, but really it's, it's, uh, you feel like you're just pouring your love down the drain. But no, this, these are treasures of Christ. And eventually, even if in this life you don't see it, eventually it, w- it will be proven that this was one of the greatest things you ever did. It was not Jackie Griffith, by the way, as I thought when I was reading. I checked that with somebody who kn- knows them. Anyway, um, where am I? Okay, the next point that I'd like to make is maybe there's a special reason why orphans and widows are given, care for orphans and widows, are given to us as litmus tests of true Christian faith. Anybody can love the rich. Everyone can love the one who loves them back and gives them something. But Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? For even sinners do the same. But you see, by commanding us to love the least of these, the ones who can't repay us, Jesus has given us a litmus test to determine whether our love is genuine or whether we're just loving ourselves. God is a God of grace. He wants his grace displayed. He's not willing for it to appear that he loves us in a selfish, human way. Let me read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 16 to 19 and 31. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you see, God chooses to love the needy, the weak, the little, so that no one can boast that he loved us because he wanted to get something from us. True Christians know what it's like to be alone in the world. They know emptiness and homelessness because they know life outside of Christ. True Christians remember that they were once separated from Christ. They remember when they had no hope and were without God in the world. Yet they know that now in Christ, they who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And Christians know what it means to be welcomed and loved and accepted and adopted and embraced and received and eternally cherished by the Heavenly Father. Christians know that they were once orphans, but they are orphans no longer because they've been adopted in Christ. I think this helps us explain why orphans and widows are a litmus test for true faith in Christ. If you really grasp the grace of Christ, you will extend the grace of Christ. If you've received the love of Christ for you in your great need, then that love will drive you to love others in need. Though you're far from perfect, you're a person of compassion. You're a person who cares about people who are hurting. You're a person who cares about the needy, trying to help, not looking down on others. You know that but for the grace of God, you'd be in the same situation. However, if our faith is just a way to get popular, or get ahead, or feel good about ourselves then the reality of Christ hasn't really gripped our hearts and there's no drive to help others. It's all about me. So James wants us not only to believe the gospel, but also to live the gospel, to show that our faith in the gospel is true. He knows that God wants to fill his children with his heart, with his compassion. Or to put it in another way, When the gospel really takes root in our hearts, it also takes root in our lives. This is one of the main themes of James through his whole book. Impact of Christ in us, the way we feel, the way we think, the way we treat others. And if we don't show mercy to others, it, it shows that we really think we deserve mercy from God. Well, a couple final thoughts. We want the Bible to comfort us and encourage us, but sometimes the Bible confronts us and rebukes us. I don't know about you, but this passage doesn't make me feel better about myself. It makes me question my love for others. Am I motivated by love for Christ? Or am I motivated by a desire, for instance, that people like me? Who are the kind of people who get my attention? The easy people? The people who give back? The movie stars? The great athletes? The politicians? The media personalities? The rock singers? Or is it the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the alone, the prisoner? In my flesh, I have to admit, I want to live in my comfort zone at ease. I want to be able to live in a comfortable house and sit on a comfortable couch and watch my TV shows and eat good food and hang out with nice people. But Jesus doesn't live in the comfort zone. 
And if I want to find Jesus, if I want to live near Jesus, I need to go to the poor, to the sick, to the prisoner, to the hurting person. That's where Jesus can be found. Think about it, on the cross, Jesus was all of these. He was hungry and thirsty, he was the stranger, he was naked, he was sick, he was a prisoner. And yet the disciples walked away from him. Just as we have a tendency to walk away when we are confronted by painful or ugly things, at least I do. We live in a pain-filled world, don't we? In a need-filled world. And there's a part of us that just wants to run away and avoid it. In, perhaps in fear, perhaps in self-interest. But Jesus in us moves us to extend ourselves to help the needy and help the hurting. And to the extent that we resist that, we're ultimately resisting Jesus. And that's the point I think that James is making. But this passage is very encouraging to one category of people. It is really good news for orphans and widows. And that's important to James and important to Jesus. Everyone else may ignore you and forget about you. The whole world might even laugh at you and take you lightly, but not the Lord. Even when no one else notices, you're always on your Savior's radar. Often, you look at, read the Gospels at the life of Jesus. It's like his whole life was a series of redemptive encounters with the least of these. He just went from one hurting, needy person to another and did them good. I remember the story in Luke 7 of the widow of Nain, since we're talking about widows today. And how this widow, she had lost her husband and then her son died. And she was left completely alone. And so the funeral procession is coming through the city gates. And you can imagine this woman, she must be shattered. And Jesus is coming the other direction with all of his, the crowd of his followers and they, they meet at the gate. And you might think that, you know, that what's the Christian thing to do? Well, back off and let them go by respectfully and let them finish their funeral. But that's not what Jesus does at all. He walks right up to the casket and he puts his hand on it. And he says, be healed. And raises the boy from the dead. And then... Does he address the boy? Does he say, wow, now you've been giving your life back? No, he, he wasn't concerned about the boy. He was concerned about the woman. He gave the boy back to her, his mother and said, here's your son. You're not alone anymore. That's Jesus. He identifies with the least among his people. Compassion was the most frequently mentioned emotion 
in the Gospels of Jesus. And that's really good news because a lot of times we feel hurting and weak and needy. And it brings us great comfort to know about the compassion of our Lord. When we're vulnerable, when we're alone, when we're forgotten or rejected or in pain. When no one else seems to care about the details of what's going on in our life, God cares. God shows us mercy. You know, another great story of Jesus is the story of blind Bartimaeus. When Jesus is going through the town of Jericho, and again there's this enormous crowd and it's loud, and he's walking in the middle of it, and there's a man on the side of the road because he can't press into the crowd because a blind man who presses into a crowd is going to end up on the ground being trampled. So he's standing off on the side, but he's trying to shout to get Jesus' attention. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No one heard him. Because everybody's making noise. That is, no one heard him except Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, that blind man, bring him over here. And they bring him, and he heals him, gives him his sight back. What a great story about how even when no one else, when we're crying out and our need is great and we're desperate, no one else is paying any attention. The Lord, He always pays attention and always is attentive to our cries. It's amazing, the compassion and mercy of Jesus. You know, there there are uh, people who... Uh, wouldn't want to hear a sermon on this passage because it's a strange thing how in our Christian society today uh, for some people um, talking about caring for the needy is a sure sign that you're a liberal and um, it's just such a lie you know because what happened was liberal Christians and when I say liberal, I mean theologically liberal. Um, you know, they in, in place of the gospel, in place of the, the scriptures as the word of God, in place of the salvation of the cross, they said what's really important is that we care for the needy. And they, cared for the, they gave lots of attention to caring for the needy. And pretty soon conservatives started saying, well, anybody who gives lots of attention to caring for the needy must be a liberal. And so we live in this day where it's like you have to pick. Am I going to care for the needy or am I going to uphold the gospel? But what a false dichotomy. This, here in, here in uh, James, this is a great verse for talking, preaching both at the same time. It says, you know, if you want to be a true Christian, you got to care for widows and orphans in their distress and you have to keep yourself unstained from the world two things that in our present culture a lot of people in their minds are like mutually contradictory but they're not they belong together they're two parts of 
what it means to follow Christ. And now let us sing in preparation for the Lord's Supper at the Lamb's High Feast. Please stand.